Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, knowing all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do come here this morning to give you our hearts. Father, no matter what season or circumstances we may find ourselves in today, we come here ready to worship you. And we're ready to worship because we know that it is simply a response to the unbelievable love that you have shown, revealed, and demonstrated to each and every one of us through Jesus. God, I pray that as only you can, through your spirit, through your strength, through your word, speak to us. God, pierce through the distractions, break through all the different circumstances that can cloud our vision, that can make us almost resistant to your love or misunderstand your love and help us to rediscover it anew today, to understand its greatness, to understand its sufficiency for our lives. God, we pray that your spirit would truly inhabit this place and it would inhabit this moment and that we could once again be stirred and moved by the incredible love of Jesus. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you for your incredible love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, church family. December 18th. We are one week away, believe it or not. And uh, I am not ready. I don't know if I'm the only one. I've still got to do Christmas shopping and all sorts of things. Uh, can I get an amen for anybody else that's with me in that boat? All right, I'm not alone. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, but I hope that this last week is enjoyable for all of us. One of the announcements that I wanted to remind you of that we mentioned last week uh, is that we, we want to do something kind of fun uh, next week on Christmas morning. And so we're asking people to send in uh, their Christmas tree pictures. And so take a picture of you and the family of your Christmas tree. Uh, and, and one of the things that we uh, would say is that it doesn't even have to be from this year. If you wanted to go back into the archives and find an older picture uh, from you, your childhood, or when your kids were little, send that in. Uh, but we would love to get a collection of those to kind of incorporate a little bit into the service next week. And so you can send those in uh, to media at ubcfortworth.org. Uh, and with that announcement in mind, I do want to take a quick survey, if, if I may. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you in here are, are still buying the real Christmas tree? Can I see a show of hands? Anyone? All right. Smith family is as well. Our household, we're, we're, we're holding on to the real thing. Let me see, those of y'all that buy artificial trees. Yeah, that's the majority, which is not surprising. I feel like that's the trend right now. There's pros and cons to each. I'm not here to really kind of try to start a debate at all, um, though I have my preferences. Uh, what I would say, though, is I think even the fact that I can take that sort of a survey and ask that question is somewhat interesting. The fact that we have artificial trees, you know what I mean? Like, just think about that for a moment. We have an artificial tree that we can bring into our home. The idea of something being artificial, uh, if you look at the definition, means that it's man-made, it's not natural. Uh, it, it is something that is often an imitation 
of something else. There, there are other ways where that word can uh, imply something is forced or contrived, something along those lines. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of man-made, unnatural, artificial uh, things that we have today. We have artificial trees, artificial flowers, artificial grass, artificial flavoring, right? It goes on and on and on. The one that has caught my attention the most, however, somewhat recently, is artificial intelligence, right? It's pretty interesting to really think about the fact that we have man-made, unnatural intelligence. And if you were paying attention at all, uh, this became a pretty focal point in the news this week uh, because of some developments in the arena of artificial intelligence. And as I was reading these articles, it kind of got me wondering where all of this started. And the truth is, is that when you think about artificial intelligence, the concept was there for a long time. Uh, the arts, literature, they had always kind of conceived this idea uh, of artificial intelligence, but it took a while for technology to really catch up. Around the 1950s is when you see some research papers being made and some initial uh, programs being developed, but you just didn't have the capacity to really do anything with it. And then obviously, over the last two couple decades, uh, you've seen a tremendous amount of progress in the arena of artificial intelligence. And so uh, this article that I found on Harvard Business Review was written by an Ethan Mollick, and he starts with this most recent development in the world of AI saying that the world has changed. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't hold back. He said the world has changed. And what he's referring to, I don't know if you guys saw this, was chat GPT. And, and it's, or it's a program that's created by this organization called OpenAI. And essentially it's a chat bot, which means that you can ask it questions and it will respond to you in English, Mandarin, French, any sort of language that you need, and to any length in uh, uh, I guess, comprehension that you need. You can tell it to give you an answer as up to five paragraphs or even longer. Uh, and it can make a pretty significant difference in a lot of different ways. It can, it can do this in the world of business. It can provide uh, answers in the world of coding. It could help you write a wedding toast. It can help you do all sorts of things. It can help you write a sermon. Not that I've done it. Don't intend to. But it can do a lot of different things. Now, this sort of technology has been around for a while. But what makes this one so different and why you saw it in the news so much is that typically that sort of artificial intelligence was still limited. If you asked these sorts of questions, the response was always less than what a human could actually do. But this new development with ChatGPT, its responses are so sophisticated, they actually seem to exceed human capabilities. And so Ethan Mollick is talking all about the different uh, implications of this sort of technology and how it can change things. Here's, here's one quote that he references in the article in terms of how it can impact business. Let me read it to you. It says, the use of AI in writing can greatly increase the productivity of businesses in a variety of industries. By utilizing AI's ability to quickly and accurately generate written content, businesses can save time and resources, allowing them to focus on other important tasks. This is particularly beneficial for industries such as marketing and advertising, consulting and finance, where high-quality written materials are essential for communicating with clients and stakeholders. Additionally, AI can also be useful for industries such as journalism and publishing, where it can help generate articles and other written content with speed and accuracy. Overall, the use of AI in writing will greatly benefit businesses by allowing them to produce more written material in less time. That whole paragraph was written by AI. Is that pretty remarkable? So literally, the, the author of this article went in and typed a simple instruction, give me a paragraph on AI's impact on business, and that's what it created. 
And so it's reached a whole nother, a whole nother level of sophistication. And it's going to allow people to do jobs that took four hours. They can do it in one. Jobs that used to take people 20 people to accomplish, one person's going to be able to do it. You're, they're going to be able to get to a place where you can really interact with this sort of responses, where these AI machines get to know you personally, your impulses, your instincts, and stores all these interactions. You can have these little personal assistants. It's, it's probably going to really radically shape things. And yet, there's some problems, correct? The problem is that it's still just an algorithm, right? And it can't tell you what to do, or, or it can't tell you why it exists, really, is what I meant to say. It can't tell you why it exists. And so what that means is that since it's an algorithm, you can still program certain biases into it. It can give you really convincing statements that are not true at all. And those biases can be woven in and be very difficult to, dis to discern because it's a program, right? And so the reason I go into links into saying this is because it's really remarkable to, remarkable to me the extent to which we have the ability and the really interest almost to build so much of our life on things that are artificial, right? And, and the, the intelligence aspect of it is, is compelling, it's, it's really impressive, it's alluring, and yet it comes with great risk. And it comes with the risk that in the end could be very destructive and be very harmful because it's artificial, right? It's, it's man-made. It's got that propensity to be corrupt. Now, I say all that because my greatest concern for our society today is maybe not so much the way in which we build our lives upon artificial intelligence, but the way that we build our lives upon artificial love. Right, essentially, society has created a man-made understanding of love that is alluring, that is captivating, that is compelling and remarkable, and yet it comes with tremendous risk. Risk that in the end, if you build your life upon it, can be more harmful and destructive rather than it can be beneficial. And so many of us have built our lives upon it. And that's really what I want us to try to address today is how do we break through this, this tendency to build upon that artificial expression of love and rediscover the truer expression of love. Now, in order to do this, there's a premise that we have to embrace, okay? And, and the premise essentially comes from John, or 1 John 4.16, right? Here's what 1 John 4.16 tells us. God is love. Say that with me. God is love. I didn't, I didn't have the cool sign language like we do with children's time, but the message is important. Listen to that. God is love. That means he's the metric. He's the barometer. He is the definition of love. He is the one that reveals it. Anything outside of God that claims to be love is artificial love. It's man-made. Right? It, it, is, it is an imitation. It's contrived. It's forced. And our whole society at times is building its life and existence upon it. Right? And so what we have to recognize is that God is love. And we need to recognize that he is the one that defines that love for us. Now here's what I think often happens for us and where we fall short in this idea, is that typically, I don't think it's hard for people that 
you know, want to believe in God or are coming to church during Christmas to believe that God is love, right? I don't think that typically is where we wrestle or where we fall short. I think where we really struggle is more along the lines of the sufficiency of God's love and the greatness of God's love. So what I mean by that is when it comes to sufficiency, we can say, yes, I know that God loves me, but I still need more, right? His love is not enough. I still need the wife, I need the spouse, I need the husband, I need the kids, I need the the career, I need all these other things to really find fulfillment. His love is not enough for me. It's not sufficient. Or we question the greatness of his love. Right, like we, we think we understand it, but in reality we don't. Our comprehension isn't quite there. This reminds me of a lot of the conversations that I have as a father with my kids. I have a, a pretty standard routine at night when I put my kids down. We'll, we'll talk for a little bit and then we'll say our prayers and we kind of have this little back and forth exchange. And at the end of that exchange, I typically say, I'll love you more than you'll ever know. And my daughter in particular uh, loves to respond back and say, no, I love you more than you'll ever know, right? And we kind of have this fun little playful back and forth about who loves each other more. And, and it's fun and I do believe it's sincere even when she says it, but as a dad, I sit there and I know that because she's younger, she's, she's 10, and she hasn't fully had the chance to experience all that life offers and all that it brings, she doesn't quite yet grasp the greatness of a parent's love, right? And I think that's how it is for us with God a lot of times. We're children, and we think we know, but a lot of times we really don't understand the greatness of his love. And so when we wrestle with the sufficiency of God's love and the greatness of God's love, all of a sudden we're dealing with something that is somewhat limited. And I think what often contributes to our misunderstanding of the sufficiency and the greatness of God's love is the way in which we have allowed an artificial understanding of love influence our view of God. And that's really what I'm trying to focus in on this morning, right? Here's the main emphasis of the message, is that we need to get to a place where we no longer allow our definition of love to influence our understanding of God. But rather, we need to allow our understanding of God to influence our definition of love. Does that make sense? We need to no longer allow our definition of love to influence our understanding of God. We need to allow our understanding of God to influence our definition of love. And that's the focus of our message this morning. Now, I already read Romans 8 to you because Romans 8 gives us a chance to to see the uniqueness of God's love, but we're gonna get to it really more towards the end of the message. What I wanna do first to really achieve this goal, this premise, is to work through some misconceptions that we have about love that are easy for us to fall into, especially in the world today, the sort of artificial characteristics that we often encounter with love in our society. And so what I wanna do is I wanna create a little bit of a comparison and, and try to accentuate a biblical, divine, true expression of love versus what we see as an artificial expression of love and make those comparisons so that when we come to Romans 8, it can hit us with a clearer understanding and we can kind of work through those things that often serve as obstacles to our ability to understand the greatness and sufficiency of God's love. So the first thing I would say is this, when we look at God's love, uh, God's love, divine love, leans towards grace where artificial love leans towards resentment. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record 
of wrongs. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now what artificial love wants to do is keep a record of wrongs. And, and we've all done it, right? We, we all fall victim to it. We're, we're what we want is to keep that list of how other people have wronged us. And what that does then is give us an opportunity to justify our resentment. Right now we've got a list, we've got evidence, we've got reasons. This is why I can be resentful towards you because you wronged me in this way. And so artificial love is gonna teach us that in essence it can become conditional. Right, as long as you treat me fairly, then you are worthy of my love. But the moment that you're not, I'm gonna keep a record of wrongs and that's gonna be used to justify my resentment. God's love keeps no record of wrongs. He remembers your sins no more. It's an incredible expression of love. God's love leans towards grace. Artificial love leans towards resentment. The next one that I want us to identify is not so much grace and resentment, but also the concept of kindness versus anger. 1 Corinthians 13 continues, love is not just kind, but it's also not easily angered. And I think those two things go hand in hand, right? Have we noticed how angry we are as a society these days? Feels like every time I turn on the news or you just hear any sort of exchanges, there's just a greater propensity towards anger and hostility in our world and in our culture, right? And, and that's what artificial love is gonna teach you, right? What it's gonna say is that if you've been wrong, then you have the, rea- the right and the reason to be angry at others. And, and yet divine love, godly love, is gonna say, no, we're gonna choose kindness, right? We're gonna choose goodness. We're gonna choose patience, <clears throat> rather than being so easily provoked and easily angered. And and so when you look at the way artificial love typically works and gets us provoked towards anger, is a lot of times, interestingly enough, it's because we get mad at people for not loving the things that we love, right? So it's almost like if, if your loves aren't in alignment with my loves, then I'm going to use that as a way to say that you're unloving and therefore justify my anger towards you. Right? You can typically see this most easily in the world of politics, correct? Right? So I'm going to choose a worldview, I'm going to choose an ideology, and I'm going to expect other people to be in alignment with this ideology. And if you're not, then you must be the unloving person. And that's why I'm going to be so angry. Right? And we're going to create this division based upon whether or not we can convince people to have their loves in alignment with ours. And so we live in a world where there's this artificial understanding of love that is actually easily angered, rather than kind and good and considerate as the divine love would call us to be. You also see a difference between a biblical love or a godly love that's gonna call us towards truth, whereas artificial love is often gonna lead us towards silence. Here's what I mean by this one. When I talk about divine love leading towards truth, what I'm talking about is that love is going to say the truth and say things even when it's hard. The Bible is filled with scriptures that call us towards rebuke, right? It's, it's filled with it. 1 Corinthians 13, again, says, love rejoices with the truth. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Ecclesiastes 7.5, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Over and over and over again. 
we see that we are called to correct, to teach, to instruct, to speak and guide towards truth. Artificial love today is going to say, don't rebuke me. Don't correct me. Don't challenge me. Only affirm me. Let me live the life that I want to live according to my truth, my view, my rules. If you rebuke me, then you are unloving. And that whole way of thinking is irrational. Right? It's, it's, it's the opposite of love in many respects. Again, I think of it from the lens of being a parent. Right? If I think about my youngest son playing in the street, I'm going to say, woo, get out of the street. I'm going to rebuke him from where he is playing. I'm going to correct him. Right? Now, he may turn to me and say, but dad, I want to play in the street. I have more fun here. You're so unfair. You're so against me. Why, why would you make me play anywhere else? And I'm going to say, but listen, the truth, son, is that playing in the street can be hurtful. There's a better way to play up here in this way, in this capacity. And I'm telling you this not because I'm against you, but because I love you. Right? Love is able to rejoice with the truth in a gentle way, in a kind way, but one that isn't intimidated into silence. Right? You can keep going with other comparisons. I'll do two more. <clears throat> Biblical love, divine love, helps us pursue fulfillment and satisfaction. Artificial love leads more towards gratification. Right? So, again, when you find an artificial love, uh, it, it finds its momentum really in trying to lure us into uh, gratifying desires, right? So what we end up doing is we end up trading intimacy for intensity, and we trade relationships for experiences. And, and we create these moments that are intense, but they're robbed of intimacy, right? We create these experiences, but they're robbed of relationship. And so they're gratifying, but then they're ultimately incredibly unfulfilling, and they leave us empty, Whereas a biblical love is going to say, I'm going to be with you in the mundane. I'm going to be with you in the slow and the steady. I'm going to be with you in relationship. I'm going to be with you beyond just experiences. I'm going to be with you in a very real and meaningful way, right, that is going to ultimately provide fulfillment rather than just experience. It's not going to just gratify your impulses, your cravings, and your desires, but it's actually going to be strong and stable and sturdy, right? We see this Time and time again, we see this again in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, love is not proud and it is not self-seeking. Last one. The last one that I'll say for us today is that biblical love understands resilience. Artificial love opts for convenience. Right? So, so when you look in the world today about love is that there's this idea that love should be filled with romance and that it should be easy, it should just happen conveniently, and the moment that it gets hard, the moment it gets difficult, it must not be love. So you can run away from it. You can walk away from it. You can choose to leave it, right? Because it's ultimately about that which is convenient. But real love has a certain depth to it, has a certain resiliency to it. First Corinthians 13 says again, love always perseveres. Right? What biblical love, divine love, understands is that hardship doesn't weaken your love, it actually makes it stronger. Right? And so what we end up with, this is just a few examples that I wanted to accentuate this morning, are all these different expressions of artificial love 
that has shaped and molded our understanding of love itself. Here's how it typically works. You're going to go through life, and you're going to have all these different things that you love. It's going to be a spouse. It's going to be children. It's going to be parents. It's going to be friendships. It's going to go beyond people. You're going to love careers. You're going to love jobs. You're going to love schools. You're going to love opportunities, causes, all these different things. But if we're not careful, our whole experience of all those relationships are going to be built upon this more artificial, man-made expression of what love is. And then one day, one day, you're going to encounter God. Somebody's going to mention him to you. You're going to have this weird prompting, this weird experience. You're going to randomly come to church, whatever it is. And then the next thing you know, your understanding of love and your understanding of God is going to intersect. And if we're not careful, our whole experience with this man-made expression of love is going to warp and distort our view of God. Right? What we're going to do then is begin to figure out, I'm broken. I make mistakes. I have all these shortcomings. God must resent me. And I'm going to have all this shame that hinders my relationship with him. And I'm going to see resentment instead of grace because that's what I've seen everywhere else. In every other relationship. That's what the world has taught me. What I'm going to discover is that when I turn on the news or when I go through life and the world seems as dark as it can be at times, it must mean that God's angry. He's not kind. He's not good. He's just angry. And there are going to be moments and expectations that I don't want God to rebuke me. I don't want to hear what he has to say. I don't want him to correct my behavior. I just want it to be affirmed. I just want it to be acknowledged. I just want to be able to do what I want to do. It's too painful to try to adjust. So God's word for me needs to be silence more than truthful. Right? Then I'm going to expect God when I pray, when I go through life, just to meet my desires, meet my cravings, that this should be a gratifying relationship. It should meet all my needs, all my wants. It should be a very gratifying experience, and I'll lose an understanding of what it actually means to find something fulfilling. And then all of a sudden, things won't go to plan. Hardship will come, life will be difficult, and I'll discover that following Jesus is actually really, really hard and inconvenient. And so I might just walk away from this whole Christianity thing altogether. Because to me, love is about convenience rather than resiliency. See what can happen? This artificial man-made understanding of love can influence our view of God rather than allowing our understanding of God to define love. And so here's, here's what I want us to really embrace this morning as we turn to Romans 8. Right, I want us to deconstruct the way society has, has maybe clouded our understanding of love and come anew with a reminder of all that the biblical divine love really carries, that it is, is this incredible depiction of everything that we've just outlined. Right? That essentially what, what changes all of it is a baby is born. And, and when that baby is born, what we have is a revelation of God saying, I'm going to do everything I can 
to show you my love. And when you look at Jesus, you see someone who embodies grace, kindness, goodness, truth, fulfillment, what it means to find satisfaction more than just gratification. You find someone that shows you what does it mean to be resilient in your faith and your commitments. Jesus is the full expression of God's love. And here's the one primary difference that Paul is about to accentuate for us, to drive the distinction home. Here's, here's what he's going to do. No matter what sort of love we experience in this life, as good as it may be, right? Let's say we, we guard against that artificial warping of our understanding of love and we really lean into these biblical ideals and we get an incredible spouse, an incredible family, just an incredible life, and we have an opportunity to experience all this grace and truth and mercy and kindness and goodness and resiliency, all the things we've talked about in an earthly experience. You know what they all do? They can all end. The one thing that is so different about Jesus' love than any other love that you're going to find on this earth is that nothing separates you from the love of Jesus. Your love for your spouse, as great as it may be, will end. Could be 10 years, could be 60 years, it'll end. Your love for your children, no matter how great, no matter how powerful, is temporary. Right? And, and how many examples do we need to find in life of broken marriages, broken relationships with parents to children, friendships, careers, all these different experiences that say, man, we thought we had this amazing love, but in the end, it was separable. There is only one love that doesn't end, and it's the love of Christ. The greatest question that Paul presents to us now as he brings this chapter to this eloquent close, close is who can separate us from the love of Christ? Let me read it again, church. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first list that Paul offers to us this morning Listen to it. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. What he's doing is he's drawing upon a list of examples of worldly suffering, which makes sense given the context, correct? Y'all can go back. 8.17 says, you're heirs with Christ if we share in his sufferings. Right? It's a really remarkable statement. Then verse 18 he says, but don't worry, your present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be, will be revealed. And as he's now working us through this progression, it, it, it doesn't compare to the love 
that will be revealed. And so no matter what you face, distress, poverty, hunger, peril, danger, when your life is at risk, it doesn't, anything you face at the end of the day will be incomparable to the love that is saved for you in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you can face in this world that comes close to it. Now he, he, he kind of brings us into Psalm 44 here, verse 22, to, to accentuate this point. He references this psalm by saying, for your sake we face death all day long, for we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's a pretty um, uh, harsh verse that just reminds us of the human dilemma, right? That, that we all face suffering. We all face death. That, that, is, that is the consequence for sin. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. No matter what we do in this life, it is all around us. You cannot escape it. We face death all day long. It's what the psalmist says. Now listen to how the psalmist actually continues. If you kept reading Psalm 44, verses 22 through 26, here's what you would find. I love this. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us from your unfailing love. So here's, here's the question of the Old Testament. When you encountered suffering, when you encountered danger, when you encountered trouble and hardship and all these different things, your question was, God, where are you? Why do you sleep? Does all of this suffering mean that your love has grown cold? That was the question that plagued them. That's the question that you and I are so prone to ask in the midst of our suffering. And the birth of Jesus tells us our God is not sleeping, he's here. It makes sense of our suffering. It tells us that now you actually, in your suffering, are participating in the love of Jesus. What a remarkable turn of events. That nothing, even your suffering, can separate you from this love. We are more than conquerors. I love that line. That line is remarkable, right? So, so the idea of conquering here, I, I think this pairs well with John chapter 16. If you're familiar with John chapter 16, there's this moment where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now the, the word that is used there in John 16 is, is this, this word for overcome in John 16 uh, essentially means triumph, okay? The word that is used here in Romans 8 is that same word, but with emphasis. So it's like super triumph, Right? It's like an overwhelming triumph. Okay? Essentially, if I were to paraphrase it for you, this is a blowout. This isn't a nail-biter. All right? This is not Baylor TCU last second field goal. This is TCU OU. You know what I'm saying? That was hard for me to work into an illustration, just so you all know. But I felt like it carried the point. But you see what I'm saying? You... It won't be close. And we may not see that all the time in this life, but when it's all said and done and we're standing in glory in the face 
of Jesus, that love will be so overwhelming, it will absolutely destroy anything that we experience in this life. We are more than conquerors. It is an excessive triumph. It is overwhelming so much so that Paul can't help himself. It's not just in comparison to the existence of suffering in this world. You can step back. Life or death, angels, demons, height, depth, nothing, no powers, nothing comes close to this love. Are you living this way? That's the question. Are we living as those have, who have experienced that sort of triumph in Christ? We are more than conquerors. There is nothing that stops his love. And so I don't know what you bring into this room today. I don't know what burdens you've carried this Easter season. I don't know what distractions you have. I don't know what temptations are in front of you. I, I don't know. But God does. And he sees you in this moment. And if there's anything that he wants you to be reminded of this morning, it's very simple. He loves you. And nothing will ever change that. And that love is more than you could ever need. Don't ever question its sufficiency. Don't let all the expressions of love in this world warp your understanding of it. Don't ever question it's greatness. We are more than conquerors. And it's interesting about that, that word of victory, that idea of triumph, is that a lot of times we think about triumph and victory through the lens of strength. Right? Well, they, they were victorious because they were stronger. They had more men. They, were, they had more army, whatever. Or we think about triumph through the lens of strategy. Well, they just had the better plan. They had the better uh, execution of it. They, they just had a better strategy going in. We think about victory sometimes through luck, right? Circumstances just fell their way. They just had good fortune in those moments. Let's not lose sight this Christmas season of what brings us victory. It's not your strength. It's not your plans. It's not just good luck. It's the love of Jesus. But the manger scene should remind each and every one of us. The birth of Jesus should show us is that God will stop at nothing to show us his love. What Christmas really is, is this incredibly profound moment that defies explanation. Where our Father in heaven kneels down and whispers in our ear, I love you more than you will ever know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for such an amazing love. And we confess we really don't comprehend its greatness. And there are so many moments where we question its sufficiency. But God, I pray that during this Christmas season, through all the 
events and parties, shopping, all the traditions and the busyness, you would find us in those quieter moments. You would find us even in the midst of the chaos and you would speak to our hearts and you would heal us in ways that only your love can. You would help us see the victory that we have in ways that only your love can. God, forgive us for the moments where our understanding of love warps our understanding of you and we lose sight of your grace, we lose sight of your kindness, your goodness, we lose sight of your truth, we lose sight of how fulfilling it is, we lose sight, God, of how resilient it is as well. Help us to be reminded of that this morning by looking at a manger, the sweet and innocent picture of a baby being laid in a manger. And may we see it and hear it and know it to be the love song that it really is. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that it never ends. And so we give you our hearts. We give you our lives. We do everything we can to show our love to you in return. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.